You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Energy. Natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. Many lies have been told about this transformation, or maybe just a deep misunderstanding that we don't know how to do it, that it's impossible, that we'll have to stop driving, and so forth, or that it will bankrupt us. If you only include in your forecast the demand you can see, your forecast is always wrong because it excludes the demand you can't see. For March 22nd, 2023, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. One of the vogue points that skeptics of the energy transition like to make is that it will require more of certain minerals and materials than the world currently produces or that even exist in the Earth's crust. That claim has been made about lithium, cobalt, graphite, and various so-called rare earth metals, just to name a few. But those making the claims never seem to have any actual data to back them up. Instead, they rely on hand-wavy rhetorical devices. Either that or they compare the global production of something today to projected demand for it some years or even decades from now, without even acknowledging that supply is not a fixed thing, it responds to demand, as we all know from Econ 101. And no one even tries to cite the estimates of how much of a resource exists in the Earth because, well, that's hard. It takes some real study to even understand the art of resource estimation. It's much easier to just assert that there isn't enough to sustain the energy transition because, frankly, they don't care about the facts. They just want to find a way to put down the prospect of a successful energy transition. For example, one of the minerals often cited as a supposed constraint on the energy transition is cobalt. Opponents of EVs make a lot of noise about the horrible working conditions of people producing cobalt in the Congo, which is by far where most of the world's natural endowment of cobalt is. And those are real issues, or were. Because a lot of EV manufacturers, including Tesla, responded to the problem by switching to lithium iron phosphate, or LFP, batteries, which use no cobalt. And now it looks like the LFP battery chemistry will overtake lithium cobalt oxide, or LCO, batteries before long, at least in the electric vehicle segment. But the people who used to loudly condemn EVs because their batteries use cobalt never bothered to condemn the consumer devices like cell phones that still use cobalt-based batteries, which tells you that their supposed concern about cobalt production wasn't really about cobalt after all. They just wanted a way to put down the transition to EVs. So when EVs stopped using batteries that use cobalt, they switched to other anti-EV arguments and forgot all about cobalt. Normally, with an issue such as this, I just borrow the classic Christopher Hitchens line, that which can be asserted without evidence may be dismissed without evidence. But when the argument starts getting real press coverage and regular folks start repeating the lie because no one has contradicted it, then unfortunately the burden of proof does fall to the defendants. The problem with this particular lie is that there really hasn't been a proper study of the material demands of the transition as compared with resource estimates and production forecasts. We just didn't have the data. Until now. In a paper published in the journal Joule in January, a group of researchers estimated the future demand for 17 key materials used in clean electricity generation under various climate mitigation scenarios, then compared those demands to the available resource estimates for those materials. They also asked whether there is any cause for concern about whether or not the requisite amounts of those materials could be produced to meet demand. So now we have the data. 
And surprise, surprise, the researchers didn't find any important constraints on the energy transition. But the details really matter here, so I invited one of the authors of the paper, Zeke Hausfather, to walk us through the methodology and the findings, give us the data, and actually show why there don't seem to be any important limits to material availability for the energy transition. Longtime listeners may recall Zeke's previous appearance on the show in episode 40 on taking planetary temperatures, which was part of our climate science miniseries, so it's great to have him join us again. We leave no argument unanswered in this discussion, so if you've been concerned about mineral availability, you won't be when you're done listening to it. Then in the news segment, we take a look at the latest global outlook for renewables from the IEA. We'll see what some U.S. government agencies are forecasting for renewable growth in the U.S. We'll note some news that's relevant to our discussions about financing renewables in episodes 189 and 190. We'll see how the Snowy 2.0 project in Australia is coming along. And we'll find out what a new study on the failure of megaprojects can tell us about the trajectory of the energy transition. But before we go to the interview... Announcements, announcements, announcements. We'd like to offer a warm welcome to our latest group subscribers. The Ontario Energy Board is the independent government regulator of the electricity and natural gas sectors in Ontario, Canada, and is based in Toronto. Key Capture Energy is an originator, owner, and operator of large-scale energy storage projects based in Albany, New York. And Air Liquida is a global leader in gases, technologies, and services for industry and health with corporate offices in Paris, France. We're so pleased to have them listening to the show. And now, our conversation with Zeke Hausfather, recorded February 10th, 2023. So let's bring him back into the conversation now. Welcome back, Zeke, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks. It's great to be back. You know, a lot of questions have been raised in recent years, especially by opponents of the energy transition, about whether we'll be able to produce enough of various materials to actually build the solutions of the energy transition. And those who are skeptical about it or opposed to the transition to EVs, for example, have claimed that there just isn't enough lithium, for example, to make all those batteries. And the same sorts of doubts have been sown about materials like rare earth metals that are used in solar and wind and various other technologies. But I have yet to hear a single one of the these loud warriors actually tackle the questions they raise in a clear and quantified way. For example, if you think there won't be enough of a material X in the future, then I think you need to say how much of X we produce today, how much of the natural resource of X there is in the world, what options there are for extracting and producing it, and in what volumes and at what cost, as well as how many of the things that use X will be built in the future and when, and whether or not they'll be able to use exactly the same amount of X as they do today, or whether that might change, and then calculate whether the market for the product that uses X will be able to tolerate those costs and production at those volumes. But nobody does that. Instead, they just put up these sort of half-baked versions of the argument that goes something like, well, we think the market of this product will grow by a certain amount over the next 40 years, and each unit uses this much of X today. So we'll assume that the product will still use that amount of X per unit as it does today, and take the estimate for how much of X we'll need 40 years from now, and compare that to how much of X the world produces today, and oh no, there won't be enough. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a very silly way to estimate anything. But I hear it all the time. This is just not real modeling. So although the people peddling these worries about resource scarcity never seem to do the math correctly, 
I was very pleased to see that you and your co-authors on a recent paper did attempt to estimate the requirements for various materials needed to produce clean electricity in the correct way. And spoiler alert, you found that, as you say in the abstract of the paper, material demands increase but cumulatively do not exceed geological reserves. So, today we're going to dig into this paper, understand your methodology, explore your findings for various materials, and try to see if there are any actual and not just hypothetical reasons to be concerned about the availability of resources for generating clean power. So, with apologies for that long preamble, let's start here. There's no doubt that the energy transition will in fact increase demand for all sorts of materials, right? Because this is a major global infrastructure build-out we're talking about. Yeah, so if we're talking about meeting our most ambitious climate goals of limiting warming to 1.5C or 2C, we're effectively going to have to replace everything today that burns fossil fuels with things that don't burn fossil fuels, or if they do, have some sort of ability to capture the carbon coming out of that. One thing that the climate science has been very clear on is that to stop the world from warming, CO2 emissions need to go to zero. Not just be cut 80%, not just be cut 90%, but actually go to zero. And so that means no unabated fossil CO2 emissions if we want to stop the world from warming. Right. And so replacing all of the things that we have that burn fossil fuels requires building a lot of new things. And that's a big question of exactly how that's going to happen, what specific technologies are going to replace fossil fuels in each different sector of the economy. And there's a lot of different estimates out there in the literature of exactly how the energy transition might go. And so when we approach this question of how much stuff do we need to replace all of our fossil fuels, we wanted to create an approach that was somewhat agnostic to the scenario of decarbonization so we could explore across a wide variety of potential pathways how much material requirements would be. And so we decided to build a framework that could take the outputs of any integrated assessment model. And integrated assessment models are the tools that are used in the IPCC process to assess sort of future mitigation scenarios. Right. And so we built this framework, we applied it to 75 different integrated assessment model runs. And in part due to the data limitations from those runs, we focused for this paper, at least specifically on the power sector, and specifically on the materials required to build generation facilities in these decarbonization scenarios. Okay, so how did you estimate the demand for these various resources? So we took each of the different integrated assessment model runs, and we looked at essentially how much generation in those models comes from different sources and how that changes over time. And based on various estimates of capacity factors for each of these technologies, we backed that into an estimate of how much capacity was built at which date in which model run. And we looked across a wide variety of different energy generation technologies, so not just wind and solar, but also things like nuclear, like carbon capture and storage facilities for gas and coal, like offshore and onshore wind, geothermal, etc. Essentially, every single different energy technology that was represented in these integrated assessment models, biomass as well, because that's one that a lot of them love, we developed an estimate of the material use based on a survey of the literature associated with each of those technologies. And so by then applying the material use based on a survey of the literature to the amount that was built over time in each of these models, we could get an estimate of the total material demand. So that was half of the analysis. 
The other half, and we can talk about this more later, is sort of taking that material requirement and then translating that into the embodied emissions associated with producing all those materials and sort of looking at what the implications for that is in terms of our ability to meet our ambitious climate targets. Okay, so you've got a wide range of scenarios that you've analyzed here, 75 of them, of these different IMs taken from the SR15 database. And I'll go ahead and use those terms because our longtime listeners have now endured many shows about the IPCC modeling framework, and hopefully (laughs) they understand what those words mean. And you have also checked the sensitivity of future material demands to different technology choices and climate targets and modeling group assumptions in so doing. So you've really done a very comprehensive approach to try to estimate what the demand for these different materials are. So before we discuss the important details in those projections and estimates, maybe you could just sort of rattle off what those 17 materials are for which you estimated the requirements and what sort of applications require them. Sure. So we can broadly divide the materials we looked at into what we call bulk materials or critical materials. Bulk materials, as the name suggests, are the bulk of the material requirements for most of these technologies, but they're also very widely used elsewhere in the economy. We're talking about things like steel and cement, whereas critical materials are materials that are produced at much smaller quantities today, but are used in certain subsets of these clean energy technologies for important purposes. So neodymium is one that often comes up there. But the full list of materials, so for the bulk materials, we looked at aluminum, cement, copper, fiberglass, normal glass, manganese, nickel, solar-grade polysilicon, and steel. And then for the critical materials, we looked at cadmium, dysprosium, gallium, indium, neodymium, selenium, silver, and tellurium. Okay. So we've got a whole bunch of kind of standard construction stuff, and then we've got a bunch of these sort of little rare earth metals that are important but used in small quantities. So what are some of the estimates about how much the energy transition will increase demand for those materials? So again, it's going to depend a fair bit on the specific mix of technologies because many of these materials are specific to technology types or even subtypes within a technology pathway. For example, tellurium is primarily used in thin film solar. And so the choice of how much thin film solar a particular model has is going to determine the overall tellurium use of that model. But broadly speaking, for the vast majority of the materials in 1.5C scenarios, so models that are designed to limit warming to 1.5C by the end of the century and minimize overshoot, we found that you're usually using somewhere between 1% and 20% of current global material production each year for the clean energy transition for building power generation. The only exceptions there are for fiberglass, where because of the amount of fiberglass used in wind turbines, you're using about 66% of current global production. Solar-grade polysilicon, where you're using 150% of current production. If we want to build more solar panels, we need to make more solar-grade polysilicon. That sort of goes without saying. And then for some of the rare earths or some of the critical materials, we're talking about somewhere in the range of 300% of current dysprosium production, 300% of current neodymium production, and about 400% of tellurium production. But for the others, like indium, gallium, cadmium, selenium, it's all 6 to 20% of current annual production is going into these technologies and these decarbonization scenarios. So with the exception of a few rare earths, we're not talking about substantially increasing current production levels relative to where we are today. Okay, great. So still, the summary results, at least for the median demand for each material in a 1.5 degree scenario, show that the additional demand for most materials, except for the couple of exceptions you mentioned there, 
will be somewhere under 15%, more or less, of current production. So as a practical matter, I don't see any serious limitations there, right? That seems very doable. Generally speaking, yes. The exceptions are potentially, again, for dysprosium, neodymium, and tellurium. And even there, the amount that is demanded is much lower than the current estimated reserves for all of these minerals except for tellurium. So in addition to looking at the amount of demand compared to current production, we looked at the cumulative demand through 2050 in each of these scenarios compared to the estimated reserves and resources of each of these materials. And so in most cases, it's a fairly small fraction, 1% to 10% of the estimated reserve of that material, or well below 1% for some of these things like steel or copper. But for tellurium, there is a case where the potential cumulative demand, at least in some scenarios that make heavier use of thin film solar, could be larger than the current estimated reserves and comparable to the estimated resources. The distinction there, of course, is that reserves are the economically recoverable amount of the material, while resources are sort of the more the total known amount. Right. It is important when we're talking about resources and reserves, however, to emphasize that this is not a comprehensive estimate of the entire accessible crust of the earth. This is simply the areas that we have actively looked for these materials. And as the history of mineral and oil and gas exploration should make abundantly clear, these numbers will increase over time as we start looking more. My mentor, Arnulf Grubler, used to say that we've had 40 years of oil left for the last 40 years. <laughs> you know, the point being that as we continue to look for these materials, we find more of them. And so I think that critics of the material availability for the clean energy transition, both on the left and on the right, should take an important lesson from Julian Simon's famous bet with Paul Ehrlich around the cost of materials over time and minerals over time, in that we are going to discover more of these. They are not necessarily going to be scarce and a limitation, even if the estimated reserves today are not as big as the potential cumulative demand. Right. And I appreciate you mentioning those important distinctions. You know, one of these days I should probably just do a technical show on reserve estimates and this kind of thing, because it is a very complex topic. And as I was cutting my teeth on the energy study, starting with oil and gas, it took quite a bit of study for me to kind of get my head around it. So as you mentioned, there's the resources, which is sort of the resource in place, that is what we think is out there in the Earth's crust. And then there's a whole lot of different ways of estimating how much of that is actually recoverable. And there's probability estimates assigned, and there's so on and so forth. And then you get down to sort of what's this category called proved reserves, which is in the oil sector or the gas sector. That's where you've actually sunk a drill bit and you've proved that something is there and you have a very good idea of how much of it there is. And then there's the production. And so what we were just talking about here kind of mixed up a little bit the, the production numbers with the resource numbers. But as you say, it's just those three rare earth elements of dysprosium, neodymium, and tellurium, where your expected demand in the future is about 3x the total production today. But that, as you pointed out, is very different from the amount of resource that can be produced profitably and that's a different number from the amount of resource that we think is out there, which in itself is a different number from the total resource that's actually out there, but we haven't found it yet or even gone looking for it or tried to prove that it's there. Yeah. On that front, it's important to emphasize that we have a much better sense of the reserves and resources of oil and gas, for example, and coal than we do for tellurium. 
because we spent half a century looking all over the world for oil, gas, and coal. <laughs> right. We have not spent half a century looking for tellurium. Right. And to Arnulf Grubler's point, reserves do grow over time, but that's also a function of improved extraction techniques as well as additional discovery. And so, for example, that's why the shale revolution increased reserves and increased U.S. production, as we just discussed in a recent show, because the extraction techniques improved, not because we suddenly discovered the resource. We knew that resource had been there for decades. We just didn't have a cost-effective way to produce it. Mm -hmm. Um, So all those things add up to additional production. But just going back to this point here about the materials that you've estimated the demand for that are significantly above current production. It's really just those five things. It's the three rare earth elements we just mentioned, which again, you think demand is going to be about three X what the demand is today. And then there's fiberglass, which you think is going to be 66% more demand. And there's solar grade polysilicon, which you think the demand for that is going to increase about 150%. And so that's fine. I wouldn't think that increasing the share of fiberglass or polysilicon will actually be much of a material story. There's plenty of silica sand and limestone and soda ash and other raw materials available to make fiberglass and polysilicon. So really, it's just those three rare earth metals that stand out to me from this paper as being potentially problematic, where each one will require roughly a tripling of production. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable take. And even there, it's important to emphasize that as we've seen in the past with the clean energy transition, there is a fair amount of room for substitution if there are, in fact, bottlenecks in these materials. So a good example here is actually cobalt. So previously, and even today, cobalt is used in lithium-ion batteries for electric vehicles, but a number of companies, Tesla, for example, have started phasing them out of new battery builds, both because of the high price of cobalt, but also because of some of the issues with the supply chain of cobalt, child labor, all that messy stuff. And so there's similar cases to be made for some of these materials. You know, tellurium, as I mentioned earlier, is fairly specific to thin film solar. And so if it gets too expensive, you just use more polysilicon and less thin film. Neodymium and dysprosium are somewhat specific to permanent magnets in wind turbines. And so there are other magnet technologies you can use that might be slightly less efficient, but reduce the requirement substantially for those materials. So... I would think of these less as hard limits for the clean energy transition and more as potential short-term bottlenecks while we figure out workarounds if there is, in fact, a near-term supply limitation on them. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. 
Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. According to Simon Evans' excellent summary analysis for Carbon Brief of the IEA's Electricity Market Report 2023, 98% of the growth in global electricity demand through 2025 will be met by renewables, at which point they will overtake coal to capture the largest share of electricity generation at 35%. Global electricity demand is expected to grow 9% by 2025, equivalent to adding another EU to global electricity demand. Most of the demand growth will be in Asia. By 2025, China will account for a third of global electricity demand, and Asia as a whole will account for more than half of all global electricity demand for the first time in history. Nuclear generation is expected to increase as well, driven by new reactor construction in China and India and reactor restarts in France and Japan. However, the increased nuclear generation is expected to just keep pace with overall demand growth, such that it holds on to its existing 10% share. Gas generation is expected to post a negligible increase, but not keep up with demand growth, causing its share of the total to fall from around 25% today to 21% in 2025. Coal's share of generation will continue its long decline from 40% in 2010 to 36% today to 33% in 2025. Overall, despite the expected 9% growth in electricity demand through 2025, CO2 emissions from the power sector are expected to slightly decline. With the increasing share of variable renewables on power grids and given the increasing impacts of weather on all types of electricity supply and demand, IEA expects an increasing need for flexible demand and expanding storage capacity, as well as more dispatchable capacity. Even so, IEA does not anticipate any major limits to increasing renewable capacity or integrating it onto the grid. Finally, battery storage is now growing at a significant clip. Around 17 gigawatts of new battery capacity was added in 2022, up 90% from a year earlier. The IEA report contains excellent data and analysis on all the major regions of the world and many individual countries, so see the link in the show notes to their detailed report for more information. Item 2. Two new forecasts from U.S. government agencies further support the outlook for rapidly expanding renewables. The Energy Information Administration, or EIA, expects 54% of all new electricity generation capacity built this year to be solar. And that's just utilities. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com. On social media, you can follow us on Mastodon at transitionshow at mastodon.energy or on Twitter at transitionshow. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.